Hello and welcome to The Dentist Podcast. I'm Eddie McKenzie, editor of The Dentist magazine, and today's episode we're looking at the subject of water fluoridation. I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Barry Cockcroft, former Chief Dental Officer for England and the current Chair of the British Fluoridation Society. So Barry, it's great to speak to you again, um, and particularly on this issue actually. I think when I first joined The Dentist magazine, this was one of the first conversations we had was on this subject. Fluoridation is something that you have been passionate about throughout your career isn't it yeah i think um i graduate i went to birmingham in 1969 and birmingham had been fluoridated uh since i think the mid 60s basically and it gradually spread out through the west midlands yeah and the, we had a fantastic dental public health team at birmingham and they explained you know and they basically said look the evidence is so strong around water fluoridation that the whole country will be fluoridated in 10 years time well they, they were right about the evidence and the evidence remains strong in fact it's even stronger now but they were wrong about the whole country going to be fluoridated only 10 percent of the country is fluoridated um so i've had a passion for water fluoridation almost since i graduated well since before i graduated i think the thing is lot of negativity around dentistry but when i graduated 73 percent of five-year-old children had had caries so it's a massive improvement now really much much better but what's not improved is the is the inequality you still find people from put you know from socially deprived groups from various various uh, groups um, suffer more caries than the average so the inequality in many ways is actually slightly widened um, because mo- more people have no caries now than did. What, what the great thing about fluoridation is it requires no compliance. Dentists know, we, most people know that if you brush your teeth, uh, reduce the frequency of sugar, you know, um, and go and see a dentist on a regular basis, which, which is appropriate, then you, you can make caries a, a thing of the, a thing of the past. But that requires some compliance and some people are not in a position to comply for various reasons. You know, if you can't afford toothpaste and a toothbrush, it's very hard to, to brush your teeth correctly. Yeah, the lack of compliance needed um, really is a big thing in fluoride's favour, isn't it? But if we can um, just start by talking about the evidence, though, because we had uh, a number of years ago, we had in the magazine an article by um, Alexander Holden, who was a dentist who was very much in favour of fluoridation, but had expressed concerns about being asked questions about it. He was nervous if a patient came in and asked about it, about how confident he could be. Um, in the article, he said he looked at the York report and said that actually the quality of the studies used in that weren't great. And I think even some of the reviewers of that report said that the evidence is only of moderate quality. So the first big question to ask really is how much confidence can dentists have when talking to patients about the evidence? There are two lots of evidence. One is is it effective and is it safe? Uh, I mean, and one of the things, one of the problems was that a lot of the evidence to show it was effective was published years ago and doesn't meet modern standards of research. And because it was so blindingly obvious that it works, no people were getting money to do the research. But actually, and we're closely connected with people in Australia, New Zealand, America, where they've got large fluoridation schemes. And there's a lot more research going on now to, to defend against that. The allegation, but there's in America they've just celebrated 75 years of water fluoridation, where they've got 77% of their population is fluoridated with no evidence of, of any harm and a clear clear evidence that it actually works to reduce the prevalence of caries. But I think you're right. I did the Southampton consultation, which actually came out positive, and the judicial review came out positive, and then, but the dentists. 
I think, felt not confident in explaining things to their patients about how to, you know, because the aunties are very good at what they do. They'll say it causes this. I mean, you know, since I've been involved, every disease known to man has been supported <laughs> fluoridation with no evidence at all. But actually, the BFS has got a fantastic website now. We're updating the website all the time. And we want to give dentists the, the, the confidence to actually say, look, it's not a medication. All water in this country contains some fluoride. All we do is adjust the level to a level that reduces caries. Well, in all the areas in this country that are artificially fluoridated, PHE does health monitoring and that there is no evidence of any, cha- any incidence of higher disease in anything. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the difficulties in this conversation, though, is that it's it's not actually a level playing field in terms of evidence needed and burden of proof, is it? It's it's much more difficult to prove a negative than it is a positive, and it's it's much easier to sow doubt than it is to to build trust. So, um, some of the claims made obviously are just outlandish. So if we if we set those to one side for for a moment, the the one that I guess is of most relevance to dentistry is um, fluorosis. So. How often does that come up in the consultations and, and debates on the subject of fluoridated water? It tends not to come up as much as people might think. I mean, the first thing you say is that, you know, virtually the whole of the West Midlands is, is fluoridated. And what fluorosis is, it's a, it, at the level where we fluoridate water artificially. It's a mild mottling, little, little white marks on the surface. And actually, when the teeth are damp, you tend not to see it. And certainly in Australia, they did where, where all the major cities are fluoridated. Uh, they did they did some research there. And actually, people in the fluoridated area liked the appearance of their teeth because they were slightly whiter. And what, what you'll find the aunties do, the aunties will produce a picture of somebody who's got absolutely brown and black uh, teeth. And that happens. And that's, you know, happens in India where the fluoride water is about 20 or 30 times what you do artificially. And because of the climate, people are drinking litres and litres and litres of water a day. So that can't be linked to artificial fluoridation, where it's sort of between 0.7 and 1, 1 parts per million. So, but actually fluorosis never, it doesn't, dentists bring it up, but people, the general public tend not to, they tend to be more concerned about the health things. And as we say, yeah. you could never prove a negative and, you know, and research is a, is a challenge. And the other thing you always find is, it's been so blindingly obvious for so long that fluoride reduces the level of caries that researchers have tended not it's not a sexy subject to go at and this is perhaps one of the problems in terms of research it's very easy to see how doubt can be created or exploited when people hear that evidence is only moderate or the line that more research is needed for example I've never met a researcher in any field that doesn't say at the end of their paper, <laughs> more research is needed. And why would yeah. they? This is, yeah. their bread and butter. this is their bread and butter. That's slightly cynical. The problem is that I think it came out in, in COVID, uh, in the pandemic, that evidence is dynamic. You know, mm-hmm. evidence changes, you know, I mean, as you do more research and certainly things changed around, around COVID. But I think the other thing around COVID is that people, you know, for various reasons, people couldn't get to the dentist. There's a huge backlog of treatment building up now. Um, but the beneficial effects of fluoridation carry on. And from, can I, if I just had one thing, that this is a personal thing. Um, people talk about fluoridation in relation to children caries. But actual fact, what we've got now is, you know, when I graduated, 60% of the adult population was, 40% of the adult population was, was edentulous. And older people, you know, were, were largely edentulous. Now, older people are largely dentate. And quite difficult to treat sometimes, maybe there are uncircumstances. 
And people must not underestimate the beneficial effect of water fluoridation on the older public, the older dentate population. It's interesting you mentioned that, actually, when when looking at the discussion around fluoridation, it, it does seem to be that most of the arguments made are around children, certainly the dental ones anyway, around children's oral health rather than adults. That's perhaps a positive case which needs to be made more more forcefully. The the case which is made in favour of fluoridation is the improvement to oral health. That, of course, needs to be put into context that oral health generally has improved everywhere, hasn't it? Even in even in non-fluoridated areas and countries, there are, there are now far fewer cavities than than there were. I know this shifts the conversation slightly, not to to, to being not whether fluoridation is effective, but whether it's even if it is effective, is it necessary if alternative methods. Uh, are providing good results too. Yeah, like I say, caries has come down a lot. I mean, when I graduated, 70 or 73% of five-year-olds had caries. It's now down to 23%. That's a significant improvement, actually down mainly to fluoride in toothpaste. And then the more significant, the significant improvement again that there's been since 2006 was when we, we, we got the toothpaste companies to change the concentration of fluoride for the very young from 440 parts per million to, from, to, to a thousand parts per million, which is clinically effective. So it's, it's improved again. But although the overall level has come down there is still a gap a significant gap between the deprived sections of the population for various reasons whatever and what you might call the overall population and it's narrowing that gap so i think what fluoride does it not only does it help reduce the overall prevalence of caries but it reduces it reduces the gap between the deprived and the non-deprived groups of people it benefits everybody it benefits older people it, it, and it, but it, it mostly the great thing is that it narrows the inequality. You know, caries is is reduced. I mean, one of the things that always bothered me was that you know if you work at the top end of any organisation at the Department of Health in NHS in education where I do some work at the moment in academia, those most of those people have got no caries. They don't understand what it's like to actually yeah. not have not have a good diet, you know, not have access to a toothbrush, not be able to afford toothpaste and things like that. And I think it's making, and that's why I'm really, really I was really, really pleased with the government. I was, I was chuffed to bits with the Green Paper when it was published in 2019. I was really worried that they would soft pedal uh, when, it got, when it got down to the nitty gritty and the antis started to get there. But actually, I was just over the moon with, with the proposals in the white paper. So I think there is, you know, I've been, there is a real opportunity, probably the best opportunity has been for 30 or 40 years to get significant progress. Yeah, it does certainly look like change may be coming in the near future, doesn't it? Just to finish off in terms of the alternatives to, to water fluoridation, though, I've seen it suggested that we should instead focus on targeted brushing schemes or that, or that fluoride should be added to milk or salt. What's your position on, on things like that? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, I mean, there are other countries that put fluoride in salt and fluoride in milk. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be, advert, you know, we're trying to get people to reduce salt. I mean, you know, I, you know, I had a stroke and I'm on a, I, you know, I have to watch my salt intake. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'd do anything to encourage people to raise their intake of salt. Yeah. And yeah. the problem is that if you put it in milk, it, it's very expensive and distributing it is, you know, is a problem and the reach is difficult. I think the most important thing in, you know, COVID has had a real impact on the economy. If you look at the return on investment, the return, on, you know, it costs a tiny amount per person to to fluoridate the water. Uh, whereas all the others, I mean, it's, I'm not saying they're not, you know, you shouldn't do them. 
But from a cost-effective point of view, water fluoridation is the most cost-effective way to do it. And I think, you know, the, the all of them require some degree of compliance. The, the brushing schemes, um, supervised brushing schemes require people to go out and do the supervising. They, if it's in schools, it only happens during school time. It doesn't happen in school holidays. I mean, so I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I, I, there is no silver bullet. Yeah, you can always run a brushing scheme and have water fluoridate or something. It's not It's not just a case of either or, is it? Absolutely not. It's not either or. It's a combination of all these things, you know, and, you know, you need to look at, you know, where where the where the caries levels are high and see if you can fluoridate that particular area and, and, and then see the benefits. But it means you, you've got to do other things as well. In Scotland, where there is no fluoridation scheme, they've done child smile. You know, I mean, that, that's brilliant. I think it's, I mean, it was, it was helpful for Charles Smile, I think, that we changed the concentration of fluoride in toothpaste at the same time, which had a big impact in England, which, yeah. which obviously has helped. But, you know, that's a real effort on behalf of the Scottish government to actually tackle this and do supervised brushing. But at the same time, you know, they could reach, um, you know, the whole of Glasgow with one fluoridation scheme, which would really, and, you know, Glasgow is a, is a city which has, more inequalities than most in England. In, in, yeah. in the gosh, that's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Has, <laughs> has 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 more inequalities than most in the UK. You know, so that would seem to me a no-brainer. But for some reason, there's a political opposition to it up there, which I think needs tackling. Yeah, if we can just go back for for one more, I think there's one question mark around fluoridation that we haven't addressed yet. This isn't a scientific. Um, query it's more of a, a philosophical one i guess this is the the question of individual autonomy compared to um public good this one i think is the one that um holds the most intellectual weight and is is perhaps the most difficult to argue against so what what would you say to somebody who opposes fluoridation on the basis of individual liberty or or choice personal choice yeah it's about living in a society everybody has a right to individual choice absolutely you know i would you know people have opposing views to me on various things and i'm quite happy for them to have that but if their views impact on somebody else's health then i think it's a societal thing so you know you might not want to drink fluoridated water but that has a mega effect on a lot of other people and if there's no evidence that it's actually harming you at all i think that's the thing then then i i think it's it's the society in general view that should take um should take precedence it's a bit like you know it, it's the the government has legislated around wearing seat belts and that's had a and it has a massive impact on other people because everybody you know the, the impact that you know when i worked in a and e you know we used to see fractured mandibles and fractured middle thirds and max and zygomas and things from car accidents and that, A, it was important for those people, but actually it put enormous strain on the NHS as well. So, and if you look at the amount of money that's been unnecessarily spent uh, on, on treating disease, which is completely preventable, it, it's, it saves society money. So I, I think that's right. I mean, we all, we're all used to rules in society. We all drive on the left-hand side of the road and yeah. most, of the, most of us stop at traffic lights. And that's, you know, and that's because we need to have rules to protect everybody. And, and so you, it's not only looking after you. It's a bit like COVID, actually. I think one of the real things that's come out of COVID, and I'm really pleased to see younger people now being really keen to be vaccinated, they realise that they are less likely to be seriously ill 
but they're doing it so they don't transmit the disease to their yeah. older relatives. And I think that's that's a classic sort of comparison, really. You know, it's not just for you. It's for the whole of society. I, I take that point entirely. But at the same time, it does make me slightly nervous because as soon as you open up to that line of reasoning, you can you can justify all sorts in terms of restrictions or mandates on behavior, whether it's for overweight people, people who drink or even for people who are promiscuous, let's say, it seems a dangerous road to go down to say that matters like that are public rather than about somebody's personal choice. Of course, that's not to say that these things are good or right. It's just that people have the right to be wrong. And of course, when that's forgotten, um, people can often then be vilified for making bad decisions that are ultimately personal ones. Yeah, I remember when I was CDO, I did an advert, I did an interview with Jeremy Vine show uh, one day. And normally when you do an interview, you get prepared, you know, and you, the, the, the comms people at the Department of Health would produce a list of likely questions. And, and you, 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 you know, I developed the lines to take and you know what to do. Yeah. And yeah. I went into comms and they said, you've got to watch this. They said, because Jeremy Vine will come at you from left field. He will ask <laughs> you something that uh, you're not expecting. So the best thing to do when you're doing Jeremy Vine is, you know the lines to say, but just be prepared for anything. And we were talking about levels of caries. And Jeremy Vine said, shouldn't people who have got children with advanced caries be charged with child abuse? And I said, absolutely not. I said, you know, he said, well, people stick their children's hand in a fire and it burns and they, they would be charged with child abuse. And I said, well, people don't deliberately set out to have to get their children's teeth decayed it, it's caused by a lack of education lack of knowledge lack of money it's not done deliberately so that the last thing on earth you would want to do is to criminalize somebody because their children um have a preventable disease so i think th- this sort of negativity you know we should prosecute people for this that and the other i think is totally wrong totally yeah. wrong for i think what we should do is encourage people to make the right choices the thing about fluoridation is though that when it comes to encouraging people um it's not something like for example the covid vaccine that can be done on an individual level somebody can have the vaccine or they can choose not to and we can encourage them to to make the right choice but with fluoridation because water is a pooled resource it's not a case that one individual can opt out of that is it so the question then becomes at what level should the decision on fluoridation be be made the um Nuffield Council on Bioethics report in 2007 said that the most appropriate way to decide was at local and regional level. The government's a white paper that I think would change that and make it national again, wouldn't it? I think it does. First of all, I think if you my own view is the BFS would would very much like to engage in consultation store in sort of or information type events in areas which were going to be fluoridated so that people who had concerns could ask their questions and get the right scientific answers i think in many ways you know the the lansley report the lansley changes which took the responsibility from um shas out to local governments uh changed the course to do fluoridation, I've got a huge financial cost to run a big consultation. The local government um, budgets have been severely hit. And I think what taking it back into central control uh, reflects the fact that over, you know, the scientific evidence is overwhelming. And it also reduced the, evi- reduced the impact of people making spurious arguments to small groups of people making big decisions. Just in, in an ideal world, though, do you think that it's something that should be decided at, at, on national or local level? 
I think, you know, from a personal point of view, from a dental point of view, the ideal world is the whole country to drink water, fluoridated water. But I think we're not there and we don't live in a perfect world. You know, some people still smoke, some people are still obese, and I think you have to recognise that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it, it's a challenge. And, I, you know, you just have to make decisions in the situation where the legislation stands at the time. And I think what the white paper potentially does, it enables decisions to be made on a basis of better science. Do you think that the white paper then will make it more likely that fluoridation schemes will will go ahead in future then? Well, the, the statement that I mean, the statement that Matt Hancock made to the Health Select Committee was was very positive. If you follow the debate in Westminster Hall, all the MPs were supportive of water fluoridation based on the science. So I am more optimistic now than I've been for a long time that we actually might take this through. We we actually do know that some areas were already looking at it. Some local authorities were. were dental caries is a significant public health issue in localities um, I would be hopeful that some more areas might might look at it but I think the best thing to do is, is to, we've got the one thing about this country we've got great data and people need to look at those data and see where it would be most cost effective to do it quickest and, 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 and act on that You've said to me before that one of the low points in your time as CDO was Southampton the, the Southampton fluoridation scheme not not going ahead that was a real low point you sound optimistic though about the future is that is that a fair assessment of where you are some people are pessimistic some people are optimistic I, I take the view that there's no point in being pessimistic but my optimism is pragmatic but but in terms of political support um, and professional support I don't think I've been this optimistic for quite a long time and it's it's worth saying it's not just professional support though is it it's also um public support too i know that the the bfs recently did some research about um support for fluoridation on social media and that came out very uh, positive too or at least it did in most it did on most of the platforms facebook uh still seemed not to be though why why do you think that is well first of all facebook's been there a lot longer and i think you know look and people who are opposed had set up groups on Facebook over years and years and years. So they've been long established. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think you can live by any of these social media things. But I think you, you have to use them to get get your point across. Um, and I think, you know, the world's change. Changes are constant. You just have to live with, with change. And the single most important thing is communication. And the way people communicate these days has changed a lot as well. You know, I mean, it, you know, when I was at school, there was BBC and ITV and that was it, you know, and, you know, it was it, things change and you just got to change as the world changes and just use it. Yeah. One of the problems, of course, with social media is the the way the algorithms work, that if you like one story, it ends up giving you more of the same. And you can very quickly find yourself in an echo chamber and have a, a completely distorted and unrepresentative view of society. Um it seems to be almost a breeding ground for missing, or it can be a breeding ground for misinformation, can't it? I think you just need to be careful. It's a bit yeah. like surveys, and you know, I used to, you know, I did a before I went before I became CDO when I was working for the BDA and their political committee. I did a course on critical critical appraisal, and the first thing you're taught in critical appraisal is to look at the source of the data. But the the best thing I heard when we did the consult, the, we did a seminar in Hull when Hull was city of culture. And we invited the Royal Society of Chemistry to come along and they organised a seminar on, on water fluoridation. And the Royal Society of Chemistry are not pro-fluoridation. 
and they're not anti-fluoridation. They are pro the accurate interpretation of scientific evidence. And the, the Susan Vickers, she's married now, she's changed her name, but Susan Vickers from the Royal Society of Chemistry stood up and said, from a Royal Society of Chemistry point of view, the, 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 on the basis of robust scientific, scientific evidence, water fluoridation is both safe and effective. And I thought that was wonderful coming from an organisation that's not a dental organisation, yeah. that doesn't have a pre-existing pro or against stance. Uh, this actually, I guess, takes us right back to the start of the conversation about the dentist who is in favour of fluoridation, but uncertain of how to have the conversation with patients, not sure what sources they might trust or what authority the dentist can, can reference when speaking to, to people who are sceptical. So what advice would you give to a, a dentist, a dental practitioner in that situation? The most important thing is, is, is to understand the science understand the data, understand the evidence and, and where it comes from, and actually possibly understand what you might get asked, what you might get challenged on, and know what the correct response is and have confidence in the science. You know, that there is lots of evidence out there. And dentists, they're scientific. You know, they, they like to know that what they're saying is is correct. You know, it's nothing worse than being, you know, finding out what you said is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, um I guess here's the here's the part where we get to have a little plug for the BFS. If anyone does want any more information on fluoridation or these kind of conversations, then the BFS website um, is a great resource for that. That's bfsweb.org. Um, and also, while we're on the subject of plugs, you also have a, a conference coming up later this year, don't you? A, a real live event. But what can you tell us about that? Yes, we're, we're hoping to hold a conference in the autumn. We, we've agreed a venue. We've got interest from quite a few significant people to speak. We hope it's going to be face to face. Obviously, it will depend on circumstances. We hope it's going to be face to face. And we hope to be able to announce some details in the next few weeks. But we hope it's going to be towards the end of October centrally based in a really interesting venue and not only we don't want to talk at people we, we want to give people a chance to exchange views ask questions and things like that and we're ho very much hoping we're certainly going to invite some younger speakers and we have invited some younger speakers so that we can bring on the next generation who might drive this forward so i'm really looking forward to it i think it, it should not be long before we're making some sort of announcement about when and where uh, we'd like to get a few more people, so we're hoping that will come out positive. But it, but we've also got some very interesting people lined up to speak. Well, that all sounds really good. We'll keep our fingers crossed that it can be a, an in-person event. Uh, just to get my own plug in there, if if any more information is available about that, that will be available on the Dentist Magazine website and through the Dentist social media channels too. So, Barry, that's all we've got time for. That's really great speaking to you again today, and hopefully I will see you in person at the BFS conference.